So this morning we are continuing the book of Philippians in what becomes now the last chapter, chapter 4 of Philippians. And today we are going to study verse 1 of Philippians chapter 4. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 4 verse 1. The infallible and inerrant word of God reads, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm fast in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, because your word is true, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit enables us to understand for which we ask you this morning to give us understanding of your word, of what it means to have love within the brethren, and to stand firm in the truth of your word. Speak to us now this morning, Lord, by your grace, by your mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in the theme of standing firm, in the theme of standing strong, I developed this uh, this analogy for which we have an interesting small case study here. Why is it that when there's a strong earthquake and there may be two buildings that are high risers, relatively similar in size and shape, why is it that one building may stand when a big earthquake hits and another one collapses? What is the key there? Well, let us take ourselves back a couple years. Mexico City, September 17th, 2017. A 7.1 magnitude earthquake rocked the city. Mexico City is the most populated city in North America. Uh, I remember that day actually because as part of my job, I support a base that is in Mexico City. So when we heard news, uh, we called the base there and, and we couldn't get it because everything was um, over impacted by, by such a big earthquake. Now, the interesting thing is, um, aside from all the, the hundreds of people that were killed and hundreds of buildings that were either damaged or collapsed, the interesting thing that brings this to our attention this morning is the following. 32 years prior to that, to the day, the same day, September 17th, an 8.0 earthquake rocked city. I remember that very clearly. I was still living in Mexico at the time, and that was very huge news in 1985. I was five years old at that time. Now, when the 1985, following that, there were many investigations done, and one thing was learned. What was the main lesson learned of all the carnage, thousands and thousands of lives lost in that earthquake of 1985? Uh, they did studies, they did uh, surveys, and they found out that they had no option, but going forward, they were going to raise the standards and the enforcement of those standards in order to build to a new code, to higher standards of building these high-risers and, I mean, apartment complexes at large, because many of those collapsed. However, as the years went by, the 90s started, mid-90s, 2000s, mid-2000s. 
and really no other major earthquakes hit, what do you think happened? In our human nature, do we grow uh, stagnant and do we not grow stale? Do we not go in cruise control mode, as I often say, and therefore not keep guard of something tragic that happened, right? Well, let us take ourselves to a short excerpt here, a couple of sentences from a Bloomberg report in an article in the aftermath of the 2017 earthquake. It reads as follows, quote, based on more than 800 public information requests and dozens of interviews, the investigation reveals how developers and city officials failed to implement the stricter building codes and another tragedy like 1985. Developers frequently cut corners to save costs while the city officials turn a blind eye. Neighbors report unsafe construction sites to authorities who rarely step in to enforce the law, unquote. So we see what happened, right? The depravity of man coming through once again. If we can count on one thing is that, right? The corruption, the fallenness in our sin nature will cause certain things like this. The disregard for building to code in this case led to more and more thousands of lost lives. And now the interesting thing is not, not that they didn't know any better. They had the renewed standards of building to code, but they willingly refused to build in such a manner. So when this earthquake finally hit again, a big earthquake in 2017, the result of taking shortcuts, bribing officials, pocketing the money that would have otherwise been used for the proper construction of these buildings, all that finally caught up to them and it took its toll only when the earthquake came, not any time before, because the earthquake, in a sense, is what will verify if indeed these structures were built to cold or not. So why do I bring this example? Well, how is the building of our spiritual life today? Are we building to code or are we just playing games, getting by in the surface from the outside? It looks like we're okay, but what happens or what will happen when we are comfortable and a major earthquake hits our life? Will the foundation that we have set in our lives stand the test? The only way that's going to be tested is not if, but when those trials, those earthquakes, if you will, hit our life. Or maybe worse yet, maybe a big earthquake, a big trial already hit you. And unfortunately, you were found to have your spiritual building collapse because it had not been built to the standard that God asks us to build our our spiritual fortress, our spiritual life too. But even if that's the case, if we have experienced any sort of collapse in our spiritual life that leads to depression, sadness, despair, even then we are reminded that the gospel is for us, right? That there is time 
that there is a chance for us to come right with God. The sermon title this morning is Standing Firm in the Lord. As Philippians 4.1 that we just read reads, Standing Firm in the Lord. And this is a command that is given with the understanding that opposition will come. Trials will come. Tribulations will come. Conflicts, persecution will come. And Paul is reminding the Philippians, as that happens, stand firm. So Paul then begins that verse with the word, therefore. The first question we need to ask ourselves as we look at this text is, what is the therefore, therefore? Right? Well, in the Greek, what that means is accordingly or as a result of what I've just told you, then I'm going to tell you this, right? So it's a link of the thoughts that he shared with them, specifically in chapter 3. Now, this will follow. That's what the therefore is therefore. So it leads us to do a quick recap of what Paul has been telling the Philippians thus far. Right? So this will get us caught up, sort of in a crash course of what Paul has told them. Paul has told them in the previous passage, which uh, Brother Eric preached last week, that their citizenship is in heaven. It's not here on earth. It's not there in Philippi, but their true citizenship is in heaven. And then before that, in verse 17, Paul has told them to imitate him. Because he is an imitator of Christ. Then before that, in verse 12, Paul is reminding the Philippians to press forward in Christ, knowing that trials lie ahead. In verse 10, Paul tells him and reminds the Philippians of the power of the resurrection while they're in suffering, while they're suffering trials. He reminds them that as real as those trials may be, that our future hope is not only spiritual, but it's also physical. There's going to be a physical resurrection of the dead. And ultimately, the Christian has their hope in that resurrection. Then before that, Paul told them that in order to come right with God, to have the righteousness that God demands, we need to be found in Christ, in the righteousness of Christ, not having a righteousness of our own, but having the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Before that, Paul laid out his human accomplishments as a religious Pharisee, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, having very high marks when compared to his brethren. And Paul basically saying, even though I have all of them beat, all that means garbage. And I exchanged that for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior. So human accomplishment means nothing. That will not gain us any favor with God. Before that, Paul opened up chapter 3 by telling them to put no confidence in the flesh. Specifically, to put no confidence, don't put their faith in circumcision. Because that's a big thing, right, for the religious Jewish people. And more broadly speaking, we learned that we cannot put in confidence 
in a human ritual, in a human act, in no human work, no matter how religious or sincere that act can be in devotion. If we put our faith in a work, in a ritual, in human effort, it will count for nothing. Right? So then the main point there is that we ought to look to Christ for his righteousness so that we can attain the righteousness of Christ. That's going to be the only thing that's sufficient. Any human effort is going to fail to make us right with God. Our only hope is to put our hope in Christ. So with that in mind, Paul now gives a command, which is the first verse in chapter 4 that we are studying today. So we're going to divide this into two points. The first point is this. Paul reinforces his pastoral care and love for the Philippian people. We see that in Philippians 4, the first half of that verse. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. So here Paul is expressing his true pastoral love, his true care for the people of Philippi. We already spoke what the therefore is, is there, right? In light of what's been said, now a command is going to be given. But before Paul gives that command of standing firm, he first makes sure that the people that he's the talking people to are reminded that, that he loves them, that he, loves that he cares them. for their well-being. Their well-being. So then how does Paul refer to the people that he's writing the letter to? The people that he's writing the letter First, we see that Paul is First, not above that. them in the lording position over them. Rather, he identifies himself as a fellow brother in Christ. And this is interesting because Paul knows that he was personally called by Jesus himself to be an apostle, to be chosen as the apostle to the Gentiles. He knows that. But yet, Paul is supplying the humility that he proclaimed to them and encouraged them to have in chapter 2. Chapter 2 was about the ultimate example of humility was Christ. And as Paul looks to Jesus for his humility, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So in that sentiment of humility, Paul tells them this in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So the application here is that the attitude required for someone in a position of authority, of leadership within the church context, one of the very first requirements is humility. Like, yes, you have to be qualified, right, to hold the, the office and to be called to it, but humility. And Paul is exercising that. So therefore, he's not only telling them, he's also practicing what he's preaching to them. Paul maintains that humility. And... It does not mean that an elder or that an elder, a deacon, an overseer should have people is to think of ourselves as servants of Christ first and foremost in order to then be leaders, 
uh, leaders that accord to faithful biblical principles, humility. And Paul is saying that as he refers to them as his fellow brothers. He doesn't put himself above them. Secondly, we see that Paul has not warned them in anger, right? Because Paul can be very harsh. But we have seen throughout the book of Philippians consistently that Paul speaks to them. He encourages them. He exhorts them because he loves them and because he misses them. Paul says that he longs for them. He also uses that same phraseology in chapter 1, verse 8, which reads as follows, Philippians 1.8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. So to yearn, to long for, the word that is used there is described as a strong desire to be in the presence of someone who is not present. That is the type of desire of genuine attitude that Paul describes when saying that he yearns for, he misses, he wants to be with the Philippians. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, if we are truly believers, we are to long for, we are to yearn for, to want to be with the family of God. We want to be in the company of believers, in fellowship, <clears throat> so that we can worship together, so that we can walk life together. And again, we see that example there in Paul. He wants to be with the people of Philippi. The third Paul is, as he is encouraging the Philippians, as he is exhorting them, as he is instructing them, as he is about to give them a command, he is not discouraged. But Paul says that they are rather his joy, his joy and crown. Elsewhere, Paul uses the same language. <clears throat> We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So we see that that's a, a common phraseology that Paul uses. And what Paul's saying here is that his crown and joy means that he is encouraged to see the real fruit of the ministry that God has given him. He's not talking about boasting about something he did. No. Paul is joyful because seeing the fruit that is being present at the church of Philippi is a confirmation that indeed God has done a job there. Indeed, God is doing a great work there. And the fruits of that are visible. So Paul says that they are his joy he reminds them once again that the joy to be found in the things of God is not defined by one circumstance. We've talked about this in the book of Philippians before. How do we know that? Well, let us be reminded that as Paul is encouraging them and he's telling them that they are his joy and his crown, Paul is writing this from a prison. And I guarantee you that the prison Paul was in was nothing like the modern prisons we have today. We're talking about real suffering. We're talking about real persecution. Physical, emotional, psychological, you name it. Paul was being exposed to that kind of trial when he wrote these words. Now when Paul says that they are his crown, the common practice in that time is that 
It was a wreath worn on the head to signify victory. Paul often uses the example of sports, right, as one runs a race in order to win, and that's how we should run the Christian life. Well, here Paul's saying that that crown he's wearing signifies victory, right? It's not that the victory has been won and we don't need to fight, but that the overall victory over sin, over death, over Satan has already been won. And he is seeing the fruit of that work being present in the church of Philippi. That in itself is a sign of the victory that Christ has brought upon those people. And Paul is therefore encouraged and joyful. And he says that that evidence is his joy and crown. Now, Paul gives him the command. We can see that Paul is affectionate. He is genuinely loving and caring for the congregation of Philippi. And now he's going to give them a command, which takes us to the second major point. Paul's command is to stand firm in the Lord. The second part of Philippians 4.1, it says, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Again, my beloved, right? Re-emphasizing his love for them. The, the phrase there is to stand firm. It means this. In that context, in the language that is used, this is military language. It means to hold one's ground, to maintain position in the face of adversity. When soldiers are going into battle and they're guarding a station, this is the kind of language that is used. Stand firm. Hold down the fort. Guard over what is there. They're protecting something. And this is the kind of language that Paul is using to tell the Philippians to continue in the faith, to persevere, to stand the position that they have as they share and grow in the gospel. So let us go back a little bit to our analogy of why that many buildings collapse during the Mexico City earthquakes. As we briefly saw, many of those buildings were cheated. And a firm foundation. They did not have a firm foundation. And when the testing came through for their structural integrity, they did not have what it took for those buildings to remain standing. So it is with the Christian life. The Christian life, if you will, is a constant battle, a constant waiting for those earthquakes that are going to hit you. And when they hit you, then and only then, are we going to know if what we were building on is a false foundation, is just rhetoric, I'm just going through the motions? Or am I really founded in Christ? Am I really standing on the rock? And yes, those earthquakes cause pain and grief and suffering. But we stand firm. Like the soldier that is defending his turf, they often don't go uninjured. They often don't go unharmed. But nevertheless, even if they have to die, they die standing firm. Is that the type of conviction that we have when we read the words of Paul? To stand firm in the Lord. May God grant us the conviction, the strength, the ability to be able to stand thus firm. Now, 
when this earthquakes hit, when these battlegrounds are manifest in our lives, even though they're manifested in a physical sense, right? Whether it's sickness, whether it's conflict, whether it's uh, the loss of a loved one or the loss of employment, whatever it may be, fighting against sin, it manifests itself in, in a physical sense because we, we live in a physical world. But let us never forget that the root cause of those issues are spiritual in nature. Spiritual in nature. And we're reminded of that by Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. I'll read that to you. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? So there Paul is saying again to stand against the schemes of the devil. Is that same type of language. To stand firm, to stay strong. Because the battle is not physical. The battle is spiritual. Similarly, back in the chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul had already said a similar thing. I'll read it to you, Philippians 1.27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side by the faith of the gospel. Again, same language. Stand firm, one spirit, one mind. Striving side by side. This, this means you're in a bit. Striving side by side. You're not cruising by. You're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See that? We are ultimately standing firm, defending the principles of the gospel, living the principles of the gospel, and standing firm when the garbage of our world comes and tries to convince us otherwise. When the influences in our life come and try to make us comply otherwise. The call to us is stand firm. A couple more references of continuing, standing fast, of persevering. First Thessalonians 3.8 says, For now we live, if you are standing fast, in the Lord. Again, standing fast. Colossians 4.2 Continue steadfast in prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Right? Prayer is a crucial ingredient in our standing firm in the things of God. Because through prayer, we are able to gain strength. We are able to gain wisdom, patience, endurance. Acts 14.22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encourage them, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Again, continuing in the faith, standing firm. With the understanding that through tribulations, through suffering, is how we walk in the path of God. It is not easy believism. It's not the type of evangelism that we hear on 
on the so-called Christian channels in TV. It's not it. That's, that's a lie. We walk in the ways of the Lord, knowing that there's opposition, knowing that there's earthquakes that are going to hit our lives, and yet we're called to stand firm. So then, standing firm is a form of maintaining spiritual stability when everything around you is shaking up. In our Christian walk, there will be an endless series of things that will make us want to waver in our faith. And the Philippians were being warned not to waver, not to be surprised when these trials hit, when conflicts, even when their own church, come up. Specifically, Paul has warned them of certain things. He has told them to stand firm against pride and self-righteousness. Do we need to stand firm and watch out for pride and self-righteousness? I know I do. Right, like, oh, I can do this myself. I got it. Or I can be good if I try hard enough. Right? Paul also warned them to stand firm while living in the midst of a perverse generation. Does that apply to us? Are we living in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation? Absolutely. I think the type of culture that we're living in nowadays puts Sodom and Gomorrah to shame. Maybe because of the advances in technology that we have. But you better believe it. We are living in a wicked and perverse generation that not only wants to tolerate, but they want us to accept and celebrate all the garbage that they're trying to brainwash us and our kids with. And if you speak up, you will be canceled. You will lose your job. You will be humiliated. Paul says, stand firm. All that it takes for wicked men, for evil, to come and flood our families, our churches, is for Christians to stay quiet. Now, should we, should we be jerks about it? No. We should stand firm. We should speak up. We should speak against evil. We should preach the gospel. And that alone is going to offend people. We don't need to be jerks, and we shouldn't be. Right? And I've learned from experience. Still got a long way to go. So, standing firm in a wicked and perverse generation. Now, Paul also told them to stand firm in the midst of persecution. Are we being persecuted in our day? Well, maybe not as harshly as our neighbors in Canada. You see how real that sounds? Our neighbors, this is next door. Where I could literally be dragged from this pulpit and into jail for preaching. For hate speech. Or for violating uh, certain rules and restrictions of the city. My friends, this is here. This is our day, today. There are laws that are being put in the books as we speak in order to make hate speech illegal. The gospel, the morality of scripture, will be considered, is considered hate speech. Paul says, stand firm. When we see these politicians, 
we are to stand firm. We are to speak against them. When we see the people that support these things, we are to stand firm. We are to stand against them. Now get this, because of my righteousness, no, I have no righteousness. But because of the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. So that as we preach righteousness, boldly, as we stand firm, unashamed of the gospel, God can do a work by making us grow, by making us be on fire for him. When we do that, when the gospel is spoken, the scripture says that people are converted when we speak the gospel. These people are out there lost in this sexual revolution nonsense. They need Christ. And the only way they're going to realize that is by us preaching it to them in love, in firmness. Paul says, stand firm. Now, these same concepts that Paul warns the Philippians about, we can see them to us this very day. This is not something foreign that we can say, well, you know, different times, different people, now we got to try a different approach. Nope. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. It's just repackaged in, in a different, in a more shiny wrapper. But it's the same thing. So then how is it, how is it that we may stumble, that we may waver, that we may be shaken in faith when these type of trials come, when these influences arrive, when these temptations want to trap us? How can we be warned in our modern day, in our culture, in our context? Well, oftentimes when the trials come, I think we've all been guilty of coming to God because we want him to do something for us. Like, yeah, we've made a profession of faith. I, I say I'm a Christian, but I'm lukewarm. I'm kind of in, kind of out. But then a trial hits, and all of a sudden, ah, I'm, I need to dedicate myself to the Lord now. And there's nothing wrong with that. Where else are we going to go? Of course we should go to Christ. Of course we should come to the Lord. But here's the issue. Many times when we come to the Lord seeking refuge, seeking a solution to a trial that we have, we are, if we are honest, we are interested in God resolving that issue so that we can then get out and go do our life as we were doing it before. Is that not true, if we're honest? And that wholeheartedly devotion and passion only lasts as long as we were making deals with God so that he would act in our favor. That is one way in which we can waver, in which we can see that we have a shaky foundation. We want God to do something for us in the here and the now, but we neglect what really is the long-term need, which is, our reconciliation with the Holy God. What we really need is God to grant us the miracle of faith, of repentance, of being truly born from above, of persevering in the faith, so that when those earthquakes hit our life, regardless of the outcome, whether God spares us or not, or God hears our prayer or not, in, in the sense that we want Him to be uh, doing what we want, that we're still going to have peace.
are we going to stand firm? So then the exhortation to stand firm in the Lord ultimately is evidence that our faith in Christ is genuine. That our faith in Christ is indeed true. Going back to our opening example of those earthquakes, let us remember that the only way to know if a building was built to code, right? All the people that stiffed uh, whoever paid for those buildings, because the reports say that they, the people who owned the buildings did pay the full prices, right? But they were, they were cheated. How are we going to know if those buildings actually were built to come? There's no other way to find out until the earthquake hits. Let us remember then that as Christians, the true evidence of our faith will come during trials. That's a constant theme in Scripture. That through trials, through suffering, that's when God molds us, shapes us, refines us, draws us to Himself, reminds us that we are vulnerable, that we are weak, and that we must depend upon Him. That's the means that God uses. Trials, suffering, tribulation. So then what, we can, what can we conclude? This is our main takeaway. We cannot stand firm in the things of God if we have a shaky foundation. We can read over and over, stand firm, and we could even agree, yes, we, we should stand firm. But if we have a shaky understanding of what it looks like, we're going to be wavering. We're going to be not able to stand firm. So how can we understand whether we have a shaky foundation or not? Well, I'll give you a few examples of how not to have a spiritual foundation. Attitude number one would say that, well, you know, God is whenever I'm in trouble. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, bail me out, and then I'll go back into my regular life. And number two is thinking that I can get away with just playing church. Doing the bare minimum to get by, right? I remember in high school when we uh, go to the first day of class, there was a group of kids who would always ask, hey, uh, teacher, what can I do? What do I have to do to get a D? Right? Because that was the bare minimum to do and, and get by. Well, that should really speak to us and say, don't we kind of look like that? To the things of God, like, all right, what is a bare minimum? Like, all right, go to church? Uh, okay, fine, I'll go to church. But that's it, right? What does that tell us? Like, that means that we're already failed. We already have a shaky foundation. We cannot get away with playing church. Attitude number three that'll make us have a shaky foundation is thing that I can be enough on my own to please God. That's a lie. I'm a good person. No, that's a lie. Scripture says that out of our own accord, out of our own strength and wisdom, we are enemies of God. We'll never please Him. And that's what we need to be found in the righteousness that is not our own. That is in the righteousness of Christ. 
I'll give you one more example of how to have a shaky foundation, things to avoid. Thinking that God's purpose for my life is to be healthy, comfortable, and trouble-free. And if God, by His grace, by His common grace, grants us that, many times, instead of humbling us in thanksgiving and adoration and devotion to draw us more to Him, it does the opposite. It's like, ah, well, everything's good. Of course God is blessing me because I'm living a pretty good life. How could He not bless me? Which leads us to pretend that we care about the things of God, but really my interests are elsewhere. My true passions would really drive me. It's not the things of the Lord, it's something else. How to not build our foundation. So then what constitutes solid faith then, which enables a person to stand firm when those earthquakes hit our life? What may that look like? Well, a good place to start is realizing that God owes me nothing. Okay? That may sound harsh. God owes me nothing. I am a wicked rebel sinner apart from Christ. I don't deserve him. I don't deserve his goodness, his grace, his mercy. Him giving me life and allowing me to breathe. But yet he has given me that. He has given that to pretty much humanity in general. That's God's common grace. We are already in a debt with God for the fact that he granted his life. We don't deserve it. We deserve nothing. That's a good place to start, which kind of gives us a place of humility. Right? I'm always reminded of the example of Bartimaeus, a blind beggar mentioned in the Gospels, right? And you would think, well, poor guy, you know, like, God should kind of give him a hand because he's, he's a poor guy. Can't see. He's, he's broke. Handicap, right? But what, what was Bartimaeus' attitude? Bartimaeus didn't ask for help. Bartimaeus cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. You see that? Bartimaeus knew that he deserved wrath. And Bartimaeus said, have mercy on me. How many times... Should we rather than ask for help, ask for mercy? For that which we don't deserve. So that we can then get God's grace and God's mercy. Acknowledging that I deserve nothing, I better ask for mercy. Like a guilty criminal that comes into the court and there's no way to excuse what I did. And instead of trying to talk my way out of it or pay my way out of it I realize there's nothing I could say that is going to excuse me and even if I withdraw my bank account and the bank accounts of all my relatives and friends I'm still not going to have enough to pay so I come to the judge and I say please judge have mercy on me see the difference another way to establish a, a solid foundation in the things of God is to realize that my right standing with God comes through faith alone, in Christ alone. My right standing with God comes through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
That is what's going to make us right with God. No amount of obedience apart from Christ, of good behavior, of being a good citizenship apart from Christ is going to help us build that foundation. When we trust Christ, when we trust His righteousness, His goodness, then and only then can we have the foundation to then start obeying, to then have access to His Holy Spirit that will enable us to believe, to gain faith more and more, to grow in the things of God. Faith alone, in Christ alone. And then obedience. But we're justified. We're made right with God only through faith alone in Christ alone. Solid foundation right there. And then, a third practical aspect that we can think about and implement is to realize that the purpose of trials in our lives, the purpose of those earthquakes that hit our life, is not necessarily for God to get us out of there as soon as possible, but rather for us to become more and more dependent upon God. Our dependence upon God in times of trials. So then, what is the encouragement here then? There's a great encouragement here that we cannot overlook. And is this. What we are being told to do, stand firm, and we're going to waver as strong as we can be in the things of the Lord, in, in faith, and congregating, and having strong relationship with our brothers and sisters. Even then, we're going to stumble. But here's the encouragement. What is being asked from us by God through His Holy Spirit, through the writing of Paul, telling us, stand firm. We can take refuge knowing that Jesus came as a man. God came as a man in Jesus. And He already did it. He stood perfectly in our place for us. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says this. What we ought to be doing is looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our faith in Christ gives us access to the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled Jesus to stand firm perfectly. To obey perfectly. So then to stand firm in our faith. In the midst of tribulations. Will be a way for us to know that we are able to stand firm. Only because our faith in Christ is real. That's going to be an evidence of our faith. And when we do that. When we do stand firm. We'll become along our brothers and sisters to help them stand firm during those earthquakes, during those trials. We are built up. We are strengthened. And who gets the glory? Where did that power come from? From God and God alone. So then, I ask myself, I ask you today, are you standing firm? You cannot stand firm unless you look to Christ. I'll let you stand firm in what he, on what He already has done. Let us therefore then trust in Christ, in His goodness, in His perfect righteousness, in His forgiveness, in His love, in His faithfulness, in His ability to give us a new mind and a new heart 
so that our desires and our thoughts and our worldview and our life, our habits change. And we desire to be more and more like him. Imitators of Paul because he's an imitator of Christ. Unless we have that new heart, unless we have trusted Christ, unless we have repented of sin and picked up our cross and followed him, unless we've done that, any other ground that we stand on is a shaky foundation. Make no mistake. Let us realize then, Christ already stood firm. So then, the only way we can stand firm, ultimately, is to trust in Christ. Repent of our sin, knowing that God is a holy God. And no sinner that is not covered by Christ will go unpunished. John 3, right, what it says. It, it says that those that have not believed are condemned already. The condemnation, the wrath of God is already upon those that do not believe. Let us turn to Christ. Let us repent. Let us believe in His righteousness. Confess our sins to Him so that we may be born from above and as we begin our life of walking in obedience, of walking in sanctification, that we can say, I can stand firm only because Christ stood firm and he strengthens me. We'll pick up this study in the rest that Paul has to say in chapter 4 of Philippians next time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have been so gracious to us. For while we were yet sinners, you died for us, Lord. While we deserved wrath, you gave us grace. May that reminder then, Lord, be for us to know that you are good, that you are gracious, and that your holiness that cannot excuse sinners has made provision for us to take refuge in Christ who has paid our debt. In Him we stand firm this morning, Lord. Strengthen us if we're wavering. Redirect us so that we may follow after You, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.